Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. We're glad you found us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. And our topic today is timeless stories of spiritual awakening. So many spiritual traditions use teaching stories. So what can we learn from them? How can these spiritual stories nourish and guide us on our path to spiritual awakening? My guest today is Sensei Sean Murphy, a fully sanctioned Zen teacher in the American White Plum lineage, as well as an award-winning author. He teaches creative writing, meditation, and literature for the University of New Mexico, Taos. Sean is the recipient of a 2018 National Endowment of the Arts Fellowship in Creative Writing. He is founder and director of the Sage Institute of Taos, which hosts an innovative meditation and mindfulness leader training program. Sean is the author of the book that we will be discussing today, One Bird, One Stone, 108 Contemporary Zen Stories, as well as three novels. You can find out more about Sean and his work at the websites murphyzen.com and sagetaos.com. Welcome, Sean Murphy. I'm so glad you could join me today on the Yoga Hour. Thank you, Laurel. It's very nice to be here. Yeah. So before we dive into our dialogue about um, teaching stories and their importance, let's begin with a yoga moment, a moment where we pause and bring ourselves fully present. Oh. So let's begin right where we are, whatever we're doing, and bring our attention to our body in space, feeling whatever surfaces support us. Whether we're sitting or standing or walking, just feeling our body and feeling where it connects to whatever surfaces support our weight. And then let's bring our attention to the breath wonderful tool that's always with us and just noticing as we take a fully conscious breath noticing the inhale and the exhale on the next inhale the cool air in the nostrils and on the next exhale the warm air flowing out 
not trying to change the natural rhythm of our breath, but just noticing, letting go of whatever happened earlier today, letting go of concerns or thoughts about whatever may happen later today, just being right here, right now. And as we rest here, here's a poem to contemplate from the Yoga Hour's founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. The poem's titled, In the Heart is a Well. In the heart is a well filled with the sound of silence. Drink from it. One taste changes everything. How do I know? The day I stopped sitting on the edge and fell in told me this. In the heart is a well filled with the sound of silence. Drink from it. One taste changes everything. How do I know? The day I stopped sitting on the edge and fell in told me this. So once again, Sean Murphy, welcome to the Yoga Hour. Thank you. So nice to be here. So today we're discussing your book, One Bird, One Stone, which was first published in 2002. uh, And then you had a um, second edition that was published in 2013. Um, your book was recommended to me by Yogacharya O'Brien, um, who thought that you would be a good guest. And once I had a chance to read the book, I totally agreed. So it's really delightful to have you here. Um, reading your book made me reflect about the power of spiritual stories and how they can help us all in our process of awakening. So as I mentioned in the introduction, teaching stories are important in many, if not if not most, maybe even all <laughs> spiritual mm-hmm. traditions. There's a quote attributed to the Buddha that says, I am the finger pointing to the moon. Don't look at me, look at the moon. And in the foreword to your book, your teacher, John Dido Lurie, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. No, you got um, it just right, yeah. <laughs> Uh, He writes, a simple story about awakening is a seed of awakening. I just love that. A simple story about Mm. awakening is a seed of awakening. Mm. So in our tradition of Kriya Yoga, an important text is the Bhagavad Gita, which is a story. It's a long story Mm. Mm -hmm. um, where the two um, main characters, uh, Krishna, who represents God or Supreme Consciousness, is teaching Arjuna, the seeking soul. And then, of course, in addition to the Zen Buddhist stories you write about, there are Christian Bible stories, there are Sufi stories, there are Jewish stories. So um, mm. obviously, this is something that you know many traditions use. Would you say more about the importance of stories as spiritual teaching tools? Yeah, I think um, I, I, I like what Dado Roshi said uh, very much. I've actually forgotten that. It's probably been a long time since I read the introduction to my own book. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, I do think they can contain a seed. And, uh, you know, in the book, I describe a moment that happened to me reading. Uh, it It's an odd choice for a teaching story, I guess. But the Dharma Bums was, you know, in the 70s to a young man in his 20s, which I was, uh, 
that just opened a certain door for me. There's there's just it it can it can show you a world that you didn't quite know was there. And uh, it's sure it's just a trace or a finger pointing at the moon or a seed or whatever you want to call it, but uh, so much inspiration can come out of it. And when I, I grew up in Miami Beach, Florida, which is a bit of a strange place to grow up, you know, it's um, there's there's a lot of glamour, but slightly empty glamour with the mm-hmm. hotel business and all of that, and. I always had this feeling that that uh, the adults around me weren't real, even when I was a child. I don't mean unreal in that they weren't there, but they had a false front up. They were trying; they were their true selves, and there was just this feeling of, "Isn't there more than this?" And mm. and encountering some of these stories, like I say, the Kerouac story, but there are uh, these collections of Zen stories were in circulation uh, in the 60s and 70s, Alan Watts' books and, and D.T. Suzuki's books, which I'm sure a lot of listeners have read, were uh, they were definitely uh, inspiration to many of us. And the Zen stories are so colorful, sometimes humorous, um, there's something about them that speaks to our age. They're often irreverent, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. it just sparks. It just it, they have the capacity to spark something in a listener, and which uh, I suppose is why they're used. And of course, you know, here I am, uh, many many years later, still spreading stories. <laughs> I hope they yeah. someday. Yeah. <laughs> so um, one of the things I thought was interesting that you that you write about um, is that. Uh, your teacher, who we've already mentioned, Abbot John Dido Lurie, um, guided you to make the writing of this book an extension of your own spiritual practice. And I thought yeah. that was really interesting instruction on his part. And I wondered how that affected how you approached the book. Yeah, well, it, it's somewhat interesting. Uh, Dido Roshi was the abbot of Zen Mountain Monastery in uh, in the Catskills, just outside of Woodstock. And I spent some time on the East Coast sometime in the 1980s, late 1980s, and I went and did did um, retreats at the monastery a number of times, but it's a big place, and I never really felt like I... It wasn't really possible to connect with Daito Roshi as a junior student coming in for one's first few retreats, some of those retreats would have 40 or 50 people, 60 people. And I even did a residency and never quite felt that I connected with him. And then I went back to California and a couple of years later went to Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado to get my MFA in writing. It happened that Dido Roshi was... Uh, was a, was teaching there. He was uh, uh, going to be teaching for three weeks, and part of the MFA program in writing was that you could get yourself assigned as an assistant to a teacher. And I thought, yeah. I, I thought, well, I'm kind of actually, I was kind of intimidated and scared of Dido Roshi. Uh, he's <laughs> you know he's he's well, he's a big man with a shaved head and you know old navy tattoos on his arms, and he's he has a kind of a tough exterior. But I, I just thought, well, you know, here's a chance. So I signed up with him to be his assistant, and he kind of did the gruff Zen master thing for a few days. 
And then it broke down, and we just started talking about all sorts of things. We became, really, we became friends, and we were close ever after. But, and I, uh, sometime after, not long after I became his formal student, spent a lot of time at the monastery. But one of the things about that Oroshi, if you got him talking, he would tell these great stories about his own practice. And that sparked something in me because I'd read some collections of the older stories. Uh, one that was well-known was Paul Reps and um, Neogen Senzaki's Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, mm-hmm. and uh, quite a well-known collection of, of Zen stories, which I had read and which intrigued me. And uh, I thought, you know, nobody's done a contemporary book of, of Zen stories. Zen's been in the West now for some decades. And so I started talking to Dido Roshi about that, and, you know, at first his way was to kind of slightly poo-poo the idea, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, because, you know, he didn't want to, uh, a lot of Zen people have this um, resistance to popularizing, and at that time, especially mm. in the 60s, 70s, 80s, first the beats and then the hippies were so into zen and and it was um you know it was kind of hip and and so he didn't want to produce something that was hip or or that was shallow but as we started talking about it obviously he wrote the introduction to it he he started to really like the idea and uh but he just kind of leaned on me to say you know don't just don't just kind of sail around and chat with people i mean really go to their centers sit with them um, get into real conversations with them, and, and uh, so I, I did that. I took the better part of a year traveling around, and wow. a lot of the people I talked to, there's a number of stories in the book about people who tested me quite a bit before they would talk to me to make sure that I was a serious practitioner, mm. and again, I discovered this thing where a lot of Zen teachers, they didn't want the popularization or the trendiness. You know, they right. didn't want just some reporter coming in and writing about this because it was amusing. They wanted they wanted the seriousness, and so you know a lot of the a lot of the people would kind of be very testing with me, and then some of them would open up and interview and talk to me, and then a couple of my, a few of my favorite stories in there about were about people who finally refused to have a conversation with me, but often we had. A, a nice long encounter before <laughs> they made the story before they refused to actually have a formal interview with me. But by then I already had the story because we had this whole back and forth thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the things I love about the book, well, certainly the stories, but it's so much more than the stories that you include. Your book really traces the history of Zen in America. And that story started with Zen master Soyen Shaku. Again, I hope yes. I'm pronouncing that correctly. Soyen Shaku, who was so. who spoke at the Parliament of the World's Religions in Chicago in 1893. Yes. And this was fascinating to me because the first teacher to bring the, the teachings of yoga and Vedanta to America, who was Swami Vivekananda, he also spoke at that very same 
world's um, parliament of the world's religions in Chicago in 1893. So here we have these two like major, Mm. um, you know, movements coming to the United States through the same vehicle. That was that 1893, Mm. um, you know, Congress uh, or parliament of the world's religions in Chicago. Um, So, I, I thought it was interesting where you you talk about uh, Soyin Chaku and how he was sort of discouraged for com- coming to the United States. So you tell us a little bit more about him and his role in bringing Zen to the United States. Yes, I, I was. I found that so amusing when I looked into it because you know at that time we had such a bias towards the West being superior, and somehow I'm sure it was the transcendentalists Emerson and Thoreau and those those poets and writers who who first got interested in the 19th century in in literature from <clears throat> from India Buddhism and 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 what we now call Hinduism right and uh, some of those writings and uh, so I think there was a certain you know one of those moments in culture where there's some interest and some opening and I find it interesting that they they reached out and found such prominent people to invite from the East. The funny thing is, from the point of view of Zen in Japan, Soyin Shaku was discouraged from coming to America because he was told it was a land of white barbarians who were, weren't even capable of understanding the subtleties of, of Buddhism or of Zen. And um, he went. Yeah, I love. I love that yeah. you know description. I mean, just the, the land of white barbarians. Wow, what a, what a thing to be met with. You know, on his way of in those sure. days, it was. I mean, it was a significant journey to come from Japan. You know, no here yeah. and end up in Chicago and yeah, you know launch this whole thing come from India. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, so interesting that moment really really changed things because, as you say, Vivekananda went on to found Vedanta and, uh, and Soyin Shaku uh, kind of broke through a certain barriers and uh, made, created the opportunity for people like D.T. Suzuki to come over and, um, and uh, Sugetsu, uh, um, uh, known as Sokeon, uh, Sasaki, uh, and uh, and Yogan Sensaki. These are a lot of S names, aren't they? When I use this this book in my meditation classes, I have to tell my students don't don't bother to try and remember all the foreign names. Just you know, soak in, just soak in mm-hmm. the teachings. But um, the names tend to blur. But yeah, three of his uh, students, or uh, in the case of Soke, I'm student of one of his students, three of them became very pivotal in establishing Zen in America. Yeah. And of course, Zen had a lot to do with breaking down the barriers to a lot of the Eastern paths because the beats and artists and intellectuals picked up on it and yeah. uh, got very excited about it as early as the 1950s. There were yeah. There were articles in prominent magazines about the, the Zen boom in New York and these sorts of things, and a lot of that started with uh, uh, with the Parliament of World Religions. Yeah. So, so we're going to spend more time in the second segment on teaching stories, but I wanted to start with touch on one story before the break, and uh, it was it's called the Point of Zen, uh, told mm. by Soen Nakagawa. Mm. So, did you want to read, or do you just want to tell that sure. story to yeah, us, the Point can, of Zen? I can I can tell that story. So. 
Yeah, so Selwyn Nakagawa was, again, one of the early Zen teachers to bring the teachings to America, and he was a good friend of Niyogen Sensaki's, who was one of Soyan Shaku's students, and Niyogen Sensaki settled in America and spent 50 years here, first working as a houseboy and a waiter and cleaning rooms and motels and such for more than 20 years before he tried to start teaching Zen. I guess the moment wasn't quite ready. But uh, he invited his friend Soa Nakagawa over, who was a prominent uh, Zen master, abbot of a temple in Japan. So Soa Nakagawa first addressed an American audience on the subject of Zen at the San Francisco Theosophical Library in 1949 during a visit to see Niyogen Sensaki. He began by quoting Soyan Shaku's infamous line, only recently have I begun to understand that, after all, I do not understand anything, which came from Soyan Shaku's 1906 talk after he returned to America some years after the Parliament of World Religions. And it seems that Soyan Shaku's statement that he didn't understand anything was not understood by Americans very well. <laughs> <laughs> they uh, they kind of laughed. They thought, why did they bother coming to this talk if the guy doesn't understand anything? But... Uh, but there's a there's a really serious point in that, and Americans, right. I just think, we're too arrogant to to imagine that they there might be something they didn't know. Anyway, so in Roshi picking up on this says says nowadays there's no one capable of being dumbfounded. Everyone seems to know everything and can answer any question. And then he illustrates his point by quoting from Wolfgang van Goethe's Faust. And the quote is, already these 10 years I lead up and down, across, to and fro, my pupils by the nose, and learn that we in truth can nothing know. This we in truth nothing know, said Soen Roshi, is exactly the point of Zen. We Zen monks apply ourselves day after day, year after year, to the study of the unthinkable. And I was interested that you pointed out in, in our earlier correspondence that that really paralleled with notions from the, your own tradition, Kriya Yoga, that, that, that the ultimate principle, the absolute God, we call, we call it Buddha nature, original mind, uh, is, is not graspable at all by the intellect. You have, to, you have to release your hold on the intellect, and the way we view it in Zen is sink into the mystery, which one will never answer through that kind of linear thought, but one can become intimate with it. One can live from it, but one can't explain it or, or, um, or grasp it through the, through the thinking mind. Exactly. And I think that is just uh, such a great point. So fascinating that, um, you know, people who if you read stories of, of uh, people who have enlightened enlightenment experiences, that's the difficulty is that they can't find the words, you know, for mm. it, um, mm. because the, there are no words, you know, for it, you can not experience it directly. Mm. That's the mm. that's the, you know, yoga path. And I think the Zen path. Mm. And to me, the, you know, some of the, um, kind of paradoxes in things like Zen koans, they're meant for you to kind of smash your brain against them for, for a yeah, while they kind until of you the can get yeah. beyond them because yeah, you yeah. can't think your way there. No, you you really can't. Although sometimes poetry or these kinds of 
teaching stories can, again, like Dido Roshi said, they can be a seed or they can be a spark that ignites. And I thought the the poem that you shared from Yogacharya O'Brien really had that spark in it. It's, that was really lovely. The one taste changes everything. And right. how do I know the day I, I stopped sitting at the edge and fell in to the well? She's not explaining what the well looks like once you fall in or anything, but there's this um, there's a lovely sense that, that her words are leading you uh, to that same edge. Well, thank I you. I, I always try and, and have a relationship between the contemplation at the beginning, and I thought that I, I love that poem of hers, and it's mm. been very meaningful to me, so it was lovely to share it, because I do feel like it's like the finger you know, pointing to the moon, um, right. As we, you know, the quote from earlier, and that, you know, somehow your eyes do get directed to beyond whatever the mm. words are saying, which is something that's lovely that can happen with poetry and something that's lovely that can happen, as we've been talking about with these spiritual teaching stories, mm. huh? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, we've got just really... about a minute and a half or so before the break. Mm. Um, what is the significance of the title, One Bird, One Stone? Yes, that comes from a um, from a Shinryu Suzuki Roshi quote, uh, and Suzuki Roshi founded the uh, San Francisco Zen Center and Green Gulch, and, and uh, Tassajara were both in his lineage as well, and a lot of people in your area will, of course, know those places. Uh, yeah, so his uh, it comes from a quote of his where he says. Uh, you Americans are always trying to kill two birds with one stone. Our way is to kill just one bird with one stone. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. of course, I always have to give the caveat that no birds were actually harmed in the writing of this book. <laughs> That's great. I love that. <laughs> no birds were actually killed in the making we're, we're of this book. We're figuratively huh? here, yes. Um, we're, we're, we're peaceful people. We uh, yoga and Zen people. You know? So, uh, yeah. But, yeah, we're always trying to do too many things at the same time, multitasking. It's gotten worse since the 60s. Which oh is my when gosh! That quote has it ever came from yeah. from uh, Suzuki Roshi? Yeah, and we're running ever faster, trying to do more, and everything somehow life just gets more frenetic, and the the kind of heart of it slips away from us the more we run like that. Yeah. So, and with that, we come to the break. You're listening to The Yoga Hour with our special guest, Sensei Sean Murphy, author of the book we're discussing today, One Bird, One Stone. Sean Murphy is the founder and director of the Sage Institute of Taos. You can learn more about him at his websites, murphyzen.com and sagetaos.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us at yogahour at unity.fm. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. After the break, we'll explore more spiritual teaching stories. We'll be right back. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour. Insights and practices for spiritually conscious living. No worries. 
Welcome back to the Yoga Hour. I'm talking with Sensei Sean Murphy about his book, One Bird, One Stone. And on the break, uh, Sean was telling me about a 28-day meditation reset, which you can sign up for now via the sagetaos.com website. You can sign up until February 3rd of 2021. Uh, it's free to frontline COVID um, frontline workers during this COVID time and anyone who has suffered from COVID. So if you would like to check that out, it's again at the sagetaos.com uh, website. So um, Sean, you mentioned this earlier, and I was almost going to ask you to tell the story then, but let's come back to it. You talk about your own experience as a college student discovering Jack Kerouac's book, Dharma Bums, mm. and how that experience, you know, that awoke something in you. And, and what you wrote at that time, I thought was just really lovely. You write, um, the effect was as though a door I'd never known existed suddenly swung open in my mind. Such a notion that what we think of as the external world might be, at least in part, a projection of our minds had never occurred to me before with such clarity and force. Mm. Um, and yoga also shares this teaching that the external world is maya or an illusion, which conceals mm. the true nature of spiritual reality. So, um, t you know, describe this a little bit. I mean, I, I have had something similar in my own experience. Maybe that was why it resonated so much for me. Mm. But you talk about walking outside after that realization. So what was that like? Yeah, well, it was sparked by a moment in Dharma Bums where the Jack Kerouac character is meditating outside at night and he spits into a puddle and he sees the stars that are reflected there ripple. And it occurs to him, well, if those stars that seem so real, the reflected stars, are obviously not real, then how do I know the stars above my head are real? And that's what made it click. And I just, all of a sudden, everything looked different. And I put down the book, walked outside, and it's as though I could, could literally see that, that, that the formerly outside world was actually in a way happening inside my head you know mm -hmm. it was it was in, entirely conditioned by my perceptions mm -hmm. my senses my preconceptions my ideas and it was so everything appeared I, I, of course this was a time where there were a lot of consciousness experiments so i have to say there were no drugs involved <laughs> you know it just it just happened your mind got blown without external it, chemicals <laughs> that's right it didn't need any help and it was in fact it's much better than any 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 chemicals but uh, yeah. yeah it was as though i was walking through a movie set i could just see how uh, nothing was I mean, there is a reality there, at least that's the Buddhist notion. It's not like we're just dreaming. There's a right. reality, and it's important to take care of it. For instance, yes. all, the, all the crises we're having now with the world, it's not as though climate change isn't happening. It's happening. Right. We should do something about it. But nonetheless, just that notion that, not the notion, the experience that we're not seeing things exactly the way they are. That really connects with what we were talking about before, that not knowing, it just kind of lifts the ceiling off things. We're walking around thinking that everything is solid and dependable and, and we know what it is. And, and that after a while, that becomes confining, but it's very liberating to realize that's not true. There might be a lot more space and a lot more air and a lot more possibility 
in life than we at first realize. And those mm. those kinds of experiences, I'm sure, I'm sure Yogacharya O'Brien was talking about something similar when she said she fell into the well. It's a bit like falling into the well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, again, there's just so many stories, and I wish we had twice as much time to talk about them all. And and you also intersperse Dharma teachings from many of these Mm. major figures that you trace, the Mm. history of Zen, you know, in America. Mm -hmm. So D.T. Suzuki was a Japanese scholar and great Zen teacher, and he... um, you you give a, a Dharma teaching, you quote him on a Dharma teaching, and mm. um, it's the one that starts, man is a thinking reed. Did you want to read that for us, or I can sure. read it, either one? Well, maybe I should hear it in your words. How, how about you read it? <laughs> is that okay? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> man is a thinking reed, but his great works are done when he is not calculating and thinking Childlikeness has to be restored with long years of training in the art of self-forgetfulness. When this is attained, man thinks, yet he does not think. He thinks like showers coming down from the sky. He thinks like the stars illuminating the nightly heavens. He thinks like the green foliage shooting forth in the relaxing spring breeze. Indeed, he is the showers the ocean, the stars, the foliage. Mm. And I just, I just adored that. It was so poetic, you know, that uh-huh. um, mm. man thinks but does not think and then gives these just wonderful ways that that might mm. feel or be experienced. Again, you know, like the mm. finger pointing at the moon, thinking like showers coming down from the sky, thinking mm. like the stars mm. illuminating the heavens. I mean, this is just so, so beautiful. So mm. what, what, um, what does that bring out in you? It's funny hearing you read it. It's um, it's it's one of those passages in the book that has a, a lot of depth that you can come back to again and again, and in itself feels kind of ungraspable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's natural for human beings to think. It's what we do, right? But there are ways of thinking that are mechanical. Those are useful, too. I mean, we're both sitting in rooms that are in buildings that were built, and the, the technology that's allowing people to hear this were built and planned, and that very scientific thinking. But there's, there's a kind of natural sort of poetic or creative thinking or thinking that comes with insight that does something beyond that kind of linear thought and of course, we, there are many creation stories in all the cultures of the world, and they're, as we understand them now, they're not pointing literally to how creation happened. They're all different poetic, symbolic takes on, on how this whole crazy thing we call life got, human life got started. Uh, but I'm, I'm fascinated by when we get ourselves out of the way the way thought can flow creatively or poetically. Of course, I'm a novelist, too, so I've written novels. Uh, But these are all oblique ways of, again, their fingers pointing at the moon. It's not like, you know, I sometimes think of Einstein, you know, this brilliant brilliant man who, who figured out the very nature of time and 
but that, I bet that that brilliance of the linear mind that helped him to understand that and create these equations that explain time, I'm sure it didn't help him at all in dealing with his wife, you know? <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole different <laughs> yeah. thing, you know? Well, to to me, when not... I read those, and maybe this was, um, you know, what really rang, you know, with me, just rang true, is there's a way of being in the world and maintaining that connection that we might have in our deepest meditation, mm -hmm. that, you know, connection to something beyond us yeah. that has these lyrical qualities that he points to. So yeah. there's definitely conventional thinking. I agree with you. We totally need all that. And there's a wonderful practice of trying to live trying to live our deepest experiences, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to take what we have seen in our deepest meditation and live from that spot. And that to me is what he's pointing to here mm -hmm. is that's, that's what thinking is like when you're in that space. Mm. Yeah, that's the that's always the trick, isn't it? Of yes. you, you see something <laughs> in your trick. meditation, yeah. or something uh, comes out of the spiritual practices. It may come out at another time. Often it does. When you're not meditating, you have uh, an insight or an experience that reveals something. But yes, to live from that, oftentimes it has to do with unity. Yes. What we experience spiritually, the, that oneness, or as Thich Nhat Hanh calls it, uh, interbeing, and uh, and yet to actually live that way, that's a whole different thing. <laughs> yeah. Right, and of course that, that oneness or union or unity that you talk about, that's the meaning of you know yoga. Of course, mm. in the United States, it's it's really... Um, so associated with just the poses and going to yoga class. But when you look at the, you know, actual right. yoga philosophy, that's really what it's about. Of course, that's what yeah, you know, Zen is about, about as well. Getting, yeah. And it's wonderful that you bring up the Thich Nhat Hanh uh, teaching, because I loved that particular story. So let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. So he, um, you, you write about his teaching, Thich Nhat Hanh's teaching of interbeing, mm -hmm. where he constantly reminds his students of the interrelatedness and therefore the lack of independent self of all mm. things. And you describe a talk of his that you attended where he held up a sheet of paper and pointed out that in addition to the obvious wood pulp that the paper was made out of, the paper mm. was also made out of the sun, water, nutrients from the soil that nourished the tree, as well as the people who harvested and processed all of those raw materials mm. and then other elements in an endless chain of creation of causation. And mm. you quote him then as saying, we may like to use the word self, but if we are aware that self is made of non-self elements, we are safe. It is like a flower. It is made of non-flower elements. The moment we see ourselves in this deeper way, we begin to realize that we inter are with mm. other people. Mm -hmm. And the feeling of distinction, the feeling of discrimination in us vanishes. Mm -hmm. So again, I just, I love this. And I feel like the, um, these oneness teachings, as I was mentioning, these are obviously, you know, teachings in yoga as well. And at this particular moment in time, we are living in such a tumultuous time in the world. Mm -hmm. It's so important to emphasize all the ways that we are connected rather than focusing on our, mm. on our differences. So I really wanted to make sure we talked about this interbeing. Mm -hmm. What yeah. did you want to expand on that at all from uh, this yeah. teaching from Thich Nhat Hanh? Sure. You know, sometimes the way I talk about this is, I don't know, 15 billion years ago or so, there's a big bang out of it. 
the universe was created, matter, matter and energy fly to the, uh, into the distance, gradually coalesce into planets, one uh, and suns, one planet happens to be at the right distance from the sun in our solar system in a tiny little corner of the universe, which has a trillion other planets and solar systems and and life forms on this earth several billion years ago and single-celled creatures eventually turn into fish and they eventually crawl up on land and they eventually become reptiles and eventually become mammals and then they eventually become hominids and finally here we are they become us and one day in 1957 i'm born and as soon as i can speak which is about 1958 one of the first things i go is say here i am world i'm me you know <laughs> and there's 15 billion uh, years of cause and effect that lead to me landing here yeah. and and uh great we, perspective yeah yeah so so really uh what what am I that's independent of anything else? Uh, sometimes I say to students, well, if you think you're an individual, separate self, remove yourself from the universe. Go ahead. You know, if you think you're in charge, <laughs> no, you, can't even, you can't even remove Thich Hans' piece of paper from the universe. You can only change its form, right? right? We're not, because we're portable and we can move around in space, we tend to think we're independent. But... But that also causes all of our pain and suffering. You know, young students especially these days in my college classes, they are so often in uh, just consumed with anxiety and depression. And, of course, a lot of that's about the state of the world. And they'll often just say, oh, we human beings, we're selfish, we're awful. Well, these things are true, but oftentimes I'll point to that interbeing thing as a way of saying, well, look at it this way. Uh, did anything bad happen to you today? And um, most of the time, no, nothing really bad happened. And I'll say, how many instances of cooperation went into today? And at first they think, well, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. And I think, well, did you drive a car here? Well, you can trace the origins of the car just like you did the piece of paper. You know, where did the metal come from? Where did the rubber come from? Who built it? Who car, who mined the the elements? Who 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 uh, synthesized the gas and and the oil that went into it and all the other things? Who, if you ate something, where did that come from? Who brought it? Did you grow it? No, it came from the supermarket, probably. <laughs> who drove right. it there? Who grew it? What? Who 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 nurtured the soil that it came out of? Where did the seeds come from? Uh, you know, if we really look at, at a given day, inevitably we have far, far more instances of cooperation than, I mean, I'll, uh, my class will laugh because I'll say, hey, we've been here all semester. Is anybody a person? You know, has anybody, has anybody uh, uh, you know, even been, been uh, rude to the next person? Um, are you still there? Yes, I'm still here. Oh, I'm I'm hearing strange beeps. I don't know if you are too. No, um, no, I'm not. So okay, all right. I hope they didn't go on uh, live. But yeah, so with, oftentimes it opens up people's eyes because we tend to focus on the negative. One negative thing happens, 
uh, you know, every once in a while, and and we we lose sight of all this cooperation that that we're surrounded by all the time. This whole web of of cooperation and kindness and support, and generosity. Yes. Yeah, no, it's that's very well said, very lovely. Mm-hmm. So um, another series of stories that you have is from Zoketsu Norman Fisher who has been a guest yeah. on the Yoga Hour several times in the past. And you have many, several stories from him in the book. One that mm. really touched me was A Turning of the Heart. Mm. Um, and it's on page 163 of the second edition and 169 mm. of the first. Um, wow. So did you want to read that or did you just want to sure, tell us that yeah. story? I just thought it was, it, it has to do with him being at a retreat with his wife and they're taking turns, you know, going and uh, meditating and taking care of the kids. You want to yes. take and, it from uh, there? Yeah. And um, Norm, uh, Norman is, uh, they're trading off taking care of the kids of so this particular day. He's taking care of, uh, of his sons and, uh, he says, he, as he describes it, he's the only human being for 50 miles around who wasn't in the Zendo. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. I guess the kids weren't either. But uh, uh, it's kind of funny because he says he, he likes to feed them in a wheelbarrow because then they couldn't run away. And when they make a big mess, he can host the wheelbarrow out afterwards. So you parents who are <laughs> out there, you might take this as a tip, you know, for for easing the uh, the care of your kids. But uh He's feeling rather resentful that he can't be in the Zendo, be meditating, hear the Dharma talk. And uh, I'll just pick it up partway through the story here. He says, I remember feeding them one of these times, feeling very upset that I was missing the Dharma talk and seeing the Roshi walk out of the Zendo first, as he would do after the talk, I had this insight. I realized that if the Dharma was really real, and it was as it is said in the teachings, that it must be that feeding my sons was the Dharma talk. If I really paid attention to what I was doing when I did that, I would get just as much benefit as I would from the talk. After that, he says, I never complained. I can say to people and really mean it, that whatever their lives are can be the Dharma. If they really view it that way and do daily practice, that's the bottom line. They have to do the practice of Zazen, which is Zen meditation then it really is possible to make whatever is in their lives into a teaching. After all, Zen is a religion. At least he's speaking of it that way now. But uh, religion should be about the turning of the heart, he says. Mm. So I think that people can find a way to practice significantly and turn their lives around deeply in whatever situation they're in. So the reason that I wanted to um, (laughs) include that story is, of course, here Mm -hmm. we are deep into the pandemic days, and many, many people are having that experience that he describes of looking at all the things that they're missing, looking at, you know, I wish I was somewhere else. Mm. But, you know, here's this wonderful teaching of him with his I think he said they're twin. They were twins, his oh, sons yeah. in the wheelbarrow yeah. outside, <laughs> and that he could, you know, bring his full attention to that in a way and make it just as meaningful as whatever it was in his heart that he was hoping for. He talks about the title of the story is "Turning of the Heart." Mm-hmm. So, anyway, I, I really wanted to put that in. Make sure we talked about mm-hmm. that today. Did you have any other comments you wanted to make about that? Well, how great for the kids, right? They're getting, <laughs> yes. you know, they're getting that quality of attention too. If, if, you know, this is 
I think now of all the people who are on the front lines and who are serving and all the medical professionals, um, the that's one of the reasons that we're offering the meditation reset, about 28 days of meditation support, is it's sometimes you do meet those people in medical situations where you can tell they've just found their own way to be completely present, whether they think of it as mindfulness or spiritual or whatever, doesn't matter, but they're their whole heart and soul are are in it, and therefore they're being fed by it, and their patients are being fed by it. Of course, we all know the other type of person who keeps up some kind of a wall or barrier to protect themselves. But uh, but but it's so much more nourishing to be able to well dive into that well, which in this case involves a lot of human suffering at this moment, and it's the kind of thing. It's the kind of thing we tend to avoid because it can involve some discomfort, but that's where the real nourishment is, mm-hmm. is when we can dive into that kind of, you know, also in the story is serving others. He's serving, he's serving the children. He's, he's mm-hmm. taking care of others. Taking care of others is the whole point of these practices, yeah. compassionate action. Yeah. That's that's really beautiful. I was flashing as you were speaking, I was flashing to a cancer patient I took care of in my training Mm. many, many years ago in internal medicine. And Mm. this was a I was on a a rotation through the in the in the hospital on the cancer service. This is a woman who had metastatic cancer of some sort. I've sort of forgotten what the details were, but um, Mm. she was there getting some pretty rigorous chemotherapy. And, And I came into her room one day and she had a button. Uh, on her gown, it was Egbok, E-G-B-O-K. And I said, oh, what, what is that? What is that? And she said, everything's going to be okay. And um, she went on, not very many months later, she died, but there was something about her presence, you know, Mm -hmm. when she, Mm. when she could say, everything's going to be okay, that Mm -hmm. made it okay. It just, the way that she was meeting it. Was really beautiful. So mm, yeah, she's talking about the big okay, right? The big okay, right? Exactly, the big okay. Yeah, it, it means that on the day we die, it's still okay. You know, if we yeah, can see yeah. life that way. Yeah. Mm, so amazingly, we come well. to the end of the show. We've got about another, you know, minute or so. Mm-hmm. So, did you have any last words of inspiration or encouragement for our listeners? Oh, just that. Uh, as adults, we get so consumed by our responsibilities and we start living in that kind of linear thinking mind. And for so many people, our life can become feel like it becomes a slog from one problem to the next. And there's an alternative, and it's something we knew as children, which is to meet every moment with one's attention we remember what that was like. We like being around kids because they still have that freshness. They're excited about each moment in general if if they're living a healthy life and have everything they need. And we can recapture that sense of awe and wonder. After, after all, everything that's happening around us every moment is a miracle. It's far more likely never to have happened at all. <laughs> you know. And yeah. and but these these veils fall across our eyes, but they're we don't realize they're self created. They have to do with thinking about life and projecting about life and planning life and regretting life and missing what's right in front of our eyes, which mm-hmm. these practices
practices are meant to strip away those veils so that we see life directly. And the beauty and wonder we seek is always right under our feet. It is our yeah. feet. It's inside our feet. I don't know how to say that, but it's it's what we are when, when our vision's clear. Yes, so very, I, very beautifully said. Yeah, <laughs> and with I, hope, that, I hope everyone me, will find a way to practice. We've come to the end of the show. Mm. You've been listening mm. to the Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the Yoga Hour, and my guest, Sensei Sean Murphy, and I have been discussing his book, One Bird, One Stone. Um, you can find out more about Sean Murphy at uh, Sean uh, sorry, murphyzen.com and sagetaus.com. And once again, there's a 28-day meditation reset that you can sign up for till February 3rd, which is free to frontline COVID workers and anyone who's suffered from, from COVID. So you might want to check that out. Thank you so much, Sean, for joining me today on the Yoga Hour. Oh, thank you, Laura. It was really a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. For our listeners, we encourage you to join us for the many <clears throat> online programs offered by Yogacharya O'Brien and the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, including morning meditation, which occurs daily from 6.30 to 7.30 a.m. Pacific, and afternoon meditation, 4 to 4.30 p.m. Pacific, and then Sunday satsangs from 10 to 11 more on Sunday mornings. There's still time to sign up for the meditation retreat, Living with Higher Purpose with Reverend Sundari Jensen, February 4th to 7th. And there's another upcoming retreat, April 15th to 18th, with uh, Yogacharya O'Brien. You can find out more about these and other programs at csecenter.org. Join us next time on the Yoga Hour when we'll have part two of my conversation with Acharya Shunya, internationally known Vedic scholar and spiritual teacher. We will be continuing our discussion about the ancient teachings of the Vedas and how they support us in claiming our birthright as powerful spiritual beings. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. 